0: You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale closes out our sermon series, Boundless, a message from the book of Hosea. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. Good to see all of you this morning. Thanks for being here on what is kind of a wet and just dreary kind of day, but uh, thanks for getting your week started off by, by being in worship. This uh, morning, we're going to wrap up this series that we've been doing for the last uh, several weeks called Boundless. But before we get into that, I want to tell you what's coming up. Next week, we're going to start a four-week series called Too Much, Living in the Land of More. And so in that series, we're going to deal with uh, materialism and consumerism and money. And so I just want to encourage you to be here as we talk about the subject that Jesus talked more about than any other topic. You realize that, that Jesus talked more about money than he did any other topic. In fact, there are 23, over 2,300 verses in scriptures that speak about money and how we deal with money. And so uh, I promise you we're not going to go through all of them, but we are going to talk about, about that for a couple of weeks. And so I just want to encourage you to make plans to be here for that. But this morning... We are wrapping up our sermon series Boundless, which we have been looking at the Old Testament book of Hosea. Now three weeks ago, just to give you a little recap in case you've missed any weeks, three weeks ago we were introduced to the story of the prophet and the prostitute, and we saw how Hosea's relationship with his wife Gomer was a very real illustration of the relationship that God had with the Israelite people. And at the end of that, we concluded that because of gomer's actions because she had continuously stepped outside of the bonds of marriage we concluded that nobody would have blamed hosea for just giving up on her for giving up on that relationship and and just saying that's it that's that's the end it's over nobody would have blamed him for that but he didn't do that he continued to to pursue her and he continued to go after her with with uh, relentless aggression so to speak And it's the same way that God pursued the Israelite people. Time and time and time again, they stepped away from God and they pursued foreign gods and foreign leaders. And yet God always continued to pursue them. And we saw that his pursuit after us is boundless. And then two weeks ago, we met the rest of the family. We met the children, only one of which we actually believe Hosea was the father of. But nonetheless, he was a father to all of them. And we, we saw their names, and we t- we spent a great deal of time talking about their names and what their names meant. And their names, we said, was a, a reminder to the Israelite people for the long-lasting consequences of their sins, which is a good reminder to us that that regardless of the forgiveness of our sins, we can be forgiven of our sins, and, and God is quick to forgive our sins, but that doesn't mean that we're free of the consequences of our sins. And so so we saw that... that uh, even, even though we are forgiven, there are consequences. But the good news is that even though we may wear names like guilt and shame, that when we repent of our sins, that God is willing to give us a new name, the name Christian. And then last week we saw how great the sacrifice that Hosea made to purchase back Go, uh, Gomer's freedom. And, and we talked about you know, the, the cost that it, that it was for Hosea, that it was not a it was not a uh, just, you know, hey, I've got a, you know, a couple dollars in my wallet and I can afford this. This was a great sacrifice that Hosea made to purchase back the freedom of his wife. But that really shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what God did for us in purchasing our freedom and purchasing our freedom from sin was that he paid a great price. And so we saw that the sacrifices that God is willing to make on our behalf are boundless. And so we're going to wrap up uh, this morning. By talking about the influence of the church and how the church's influence can be boundless. Now, if you know anything about the prophets at all, you know that more often than not, their messages were not not feel-good kind of messages. They were, they were not smile and everything will be okay and smile and, and everything will work out for you. If you give this much money to God, God will give you this much. You know Those were not those kind of messages. In fact, that's prosperity gospel and it's a false gospel. And so they never preached those kind of messages. But more often than not, the messages of the Old Testament prophets were not messages that left you with the warm fuzzies. I mean, you just didn't go away from church that morning going, oh man, I, I, I really feel good about being here. Now, more often than not, their messages were about judgment. In fact, we see this through several of the prophets. Let me give you a couple examples. Jonah, we're, we're all pretty familiar with Jonah. Jonah is, gives instructions, his instructions are to go to the Assyrians and, and to give them a message of judgment and destruction. If you don't repent of your sins because of your sin, your city's going to be destroyed. And because of Jonah's message, the, the people in the capital city of Nineveh, they repented of their sins. Obadiah. That's another Old Testament prophet that we don't we don't talk about very much. It's a real short short book in the Bible. In fact, it's just one chapter. He speaks to the destruction of the Edomite nation for their treatment of of their brother Israel. The Edomites were descendants of Esau and and who you might remember was the brother of of Jacob or Israel after God changed his name. And Obadiah's prophecy is so strong that he says there will come a time when there will be no remnant of the nation of Israel. In other words, there will be nobody in existence that will be able to claim heritage to the Edomite nation. And guess what? In our world today, there is not a single living person who can lay claim to being an Edomite. There is no lineage of Edomites that still exist today. God's Word is true. And so in just a few moments, I'm, we're going to get into to the text of Hosea that we're going to look at this morning. But and, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you, it's not necessarily a feel-good message, okay? What, what Hosea has to say to the nation of Israel is not, is not heartwarming. But I've said all of that to, to say this this morning. Even if you don't believe anything about God's Word, God's Word is not just for those who believe, Alright? So God's word is not just for those who believe. And we talked we touched on this a little bit last week. But even, even if you don't believe anything about the, the historical narratives found in the Bible, there is there is solid moral character developing uh, teachings found in Scripture. Okay? You you don't have to believe in Jesus to believe that lying is bad. You don't have to believe in the, the account of creation to to know that murder is not good for our society. You don't have to believe in any of the of the teachings. Uh, of the stories, the narratives found in Scripture to believe, to have, to, to believe in moral teachings, okay? They're, they're not um, necessarily, you know, we think they, they, they go hand in hand, but there are a lot of good moral people who, who we interact with on an everyday basis. You go to school with them, you work with them, they live next door to you. There are a lot of good moral people who don't believe anything about the Bible, and so all I'm saying about that this morning is that when you look around our, our country, and we need, to, we need to just recognize this going into our text today, because, when you, because Hosea's message was, for, was not just for a specific group of people. I mean, it, it was for the Israelite people, but it was also to a country. And when you look around it, at our country today, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw from the nation of Israel and the United States of America, especially the church in America, and so I just want to I just want to lay that kind of foundation as we get into the message that there are a lot of good, solid, moral people who don't believe anything about the Bible, and yet they have they have moral. Um, we would say we'd say they're good people. You know, you, we, you go to the funeral home. And you know good and well that person had never stepped at foot in a church a day in their life. And what do we say? Well, they were a good person, right? They were a good person. Now, maybe it's because it's impolite to, to say bad things about a, a dead person at a funeral. May, maybe so. But, but we say, ah, oh, they were good people, right? We say that about a lot of people, that there are a lot of good people. And they, they've never darkened the door of a church. They've never had a relationship with Jesus. And so maybe, just maybe, if we want to change that, then we would start to begin to use these, um, these moral uh, teachings that we have common ground with, that we would use those to build a relationship with them and to introduce them into to a relationship with Jesus and use those, those things that we already believe and that many of our same beliefs, our moral values, our, our, our core beliefs as people, that, that they also believe, we would use that as shared common ground to begin to introduce them to the to the reason why we believe those things. And so so that's just kind of the 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 framework for what we're going to deal with today. Now, I've already kind of alluded to this but you know, the narrative of our country right now seems to be very very anti-church. Not necessarily anti-Jesus, but but somewhat, but definitely anti-church, anti-established organized religion, okay? I, I don't think there would be any, any uh, argument from anybody that the narrative of our, church, of our culture today is very anti-religion, uh, and I think it's for several reasons. The first is this, that the assumption from non-church goers is that we, uh, we want them to immediately change the way that they live their life, and we do want to see them change the way that they, they do life. And, and we want to see them have that change. But again, there are a lot of really good people who aren't Christians, who don't go to church. And here's what has happened. They haven't seen that church is a place for them. They haven't seen the difference that Jesus would make in their otherwise okay life. Because there's a lot of good people. And they're just out there living life and they're doing their thing. And, and again, if they were to die and we went to their funeral, we'd say, yeah, they were good people. And they just haven't seen the difference that Jesus would make in their life. And so they don't have any any room for the church in their life. And so, again, all I'm suggesting this morning is that when we're talking to these people in our everyday lives, again, you work with them, you go to school with them, they live next door to you, that we would use these moral beliefs that we share as common ground to begin to introduce them into a relationship with Jesus. Second reason is this. As for for those that are anti-church or anti-established uh, religion, the second reason is this: that they see the church and it doesn't look really any different than the rest of the world. They see the church today and it doesn't really look any different than the rest of the world. What they see in their minds, right or wrong, are a bunch of hypocrites. And in all honesty, in their world and and for that matter, in our world too, it's already too full of of people who say one thing but do another, who, who lie and will stab you in the back. Our world's too full of that, and so, so they don't have any time for that. They don't have any room left for, for that in their lives. And in a few moments, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig a little deeper into that idea. But again, all I'm suggesting is that if we want to see this narrative change, then we can't ignore what the culture says around us. And we can't ignore the role that the church should be playing in shaping culture. But unfortunately, it seems that, that we've kind of let the, the scripts get flipped. We've we've let the roles be reversed, and, and instead of the church influencing and shaping culture, we've allowed culture to shape and influence the church. And it was never meant to be that way. Because the influence that the church was, was meant to have was supposed to be boundless and limitless and supposed to be, be life-changing and world-changing. You realize what the, what the world, the culture said about uh, the apostles in Acts? It said, we, they said, we don't want these people coming up here because they're going to disrupt our lives because they are flipping the world upside down. That was the kind of influence that the disciples were having. And so people in, the, in other regions were recognizing that. And they said, we don't, we don't want them coming up here because we know if they do, they're going to turn our world upside down too. Would people say that about the church today? That we're turning the world upside down? That we're, that we're flipping the script? I don't think so. And so I understand that this message, it, it might seem a little heavy, and honestly, it's going to get a little heavier before we get done. Um, I, get, I get it. I really do, but... but we. But we can continue to ignore what the, what the culture says about the church. and We can ignore the state of the church of America, and we, and we can deal with the fallout from that. Or we can be reminded by God's Word, and we can do better. So listen to what God says through the prophet Hosea about the Israelite people, beginning in chapter 4. This is what he says in chapter 4, and I think we'll be able to draw some strong parallels. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. That's just verse 1. <laughs> and, and, and we could just stop right there, and we could spend the rest of our time just talking about that one verse. But let's, but let's be honest. We can't, there, there's no faithfulness. We can't commit to anything more than 30 minutes unless we're binge-watching a show on Netflix. That's about the only thing we can commit to right now. There's no kindness in your land, God says, we're at a point right now where we have to put art signs in, our, in our, all of our yards to remind people to be kind. And, and don't get me wrong, I think that's a great thing. But the, the commentary that's sad about that is that we've gotten to a point where that's necessary. It says there's no knowledge of God in your land. And That's not just an indictment against the church or against the world. That's also an indictment against the church. The church right now is the most biblically illiterate that it's ever been. And yet we have more access to God's Word than ever before. So let's keep going. Verse 2 says, You make vows and you break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. I don't think we need to really even even go into that. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. And we look around and we say, yep, that, that, that fits us. He says, There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. Sound familiar? If if not, watch the news. Read a newspaper. Pay attention to what's going on in the world around you because I guarantee you will see all of this stuff. He says in verse 3, This is why your land is in mourning and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the bird of the sky, and the fish of the sea are disappearing. And So he says all of that to get to this point. Don't miss miss what he's about to say here. Verse 4 says, Don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. In other words, it's nobody else's fault but yours. Do not pass the buck any further. It stops with you. And we got to say, how much of this is what's going on in our world today is our fault? Yeah, we can't be responsible for everybody's actions, but can we be responsible for our own actions? And how much of our own actions have have led to the destruction of the influence of the church and society, individually and corporately? Then he says, my complaint is, You priest is with you. My complaint is with the priest. And now now before we think, okay, this is all just the religious leader's fault, remember who Peter said in the New Testament. He said that all believers are, we belong to a royal priesthood and that we're a priesthood of believers so that all Christians, so if we're putting this in our context today, all Christians are priests. So he says, my complaint is with you, the people that ought to know better. My complaint is with you. So you will stumble in broad daylight, and your false prophets you will fall, will fall with you in the night, and I will destroy Israel, your mother. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Wow, my people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Well, who are, who are God's people? Well we can in the Old Testament, we can certainly point to the, to the Israelites. In the New Testament, we would say the church. but here's let's, let's expand this a little e- even further because my people refers to everyone God's desire was always for everyone to belong to him for every person to 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 fall under his name John 3 16 for God so loved the church for God so loved me for God so loved a select few no for God so loved the world that includes everybody and so so he says my people are being destroyed because they don't know me you realize what that means, the implication for, for us today is? It means that there are people every day that die and go to hell and do not know God. And he says, the blame for that is on you. The blame for that is on me. The blame for that is on us. So then he keeps going. He says, since you priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priest. Since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. That's a good reminder for us, that our sinfulness can have generational consequences. That our, our sinfulness can have generational consequences. What we do now can affect generations much later down the road. God says, I'll, I'll forget to bless them. You want to ignore me now? I, I'll forget to bless your children. I often hear, old enough to know better, old enough to know better Christians complain about young people in the church, or, or for that matter, young people not in the church. And, and if you look outside in our culture, there's a generational war that's taken place, and, and there's this, uh, there's this um, the elder and the, the boomer generation, and they seem to be uh, anti-millennials, and millennials kind of seem to be anti-boomer in generation. And, and what I often hear, and maybe it's just because I spend more time with, with the, uh, the older generations, what I often hear is, is those millennials, they just don't know anything. They, just, they, they think they're so entitled, and they, they, they think this, and they do that, and, they, and this, this, and that. And you know what I want to often say to them? is who raised them? Who raised them? They're acting like you taught them to act. Who raised them? And guess what? I hear, I hear that in the church all the time is, well, our young people, they're just so, they're just so lazy or whatever. Well, guess what? They're not acting any different than what they're being taught to act like. And so if we want to see them act differently, then maybe we should teach them differently. Maybe we should act differently. We can point blame and, and, and pass the buck on everybody else, and we're pretty good at that. But at some point, that's got to stop. And at some point, we've got to take responsibility for our own selves. And if we want the, we want the next generation, and realize this, the church is always just one generation away from extinction. realize that but if we want the next generation to come along and to and to move our our legacy forward to move our church forward to move the gospel forward then guess what it's our responsibility to teach them to do that and we've relegated them to to downstairs in the kids wing and and, in that in one little room and we say hey go in there and color for a little while and and when they get to be teenagers we wonder why they don't have a better biblical foundation that's not on them that's on us so we've got, we've got to remember that, okay? We can't just pass the blame. We have, to, we have to take it ourselves. He finishes up. Verse 7. He says, The more priests there are, the more they sin against me. And then don't miss this phrase. He says, They have exchanged the glory of God for the shame of idols now we read that last verse and we think okay well good he's not talking about us anymore because you know we, we don't worship idols do we I don't, I don't have any idols I don't worship statues or wooden poles I don't do any of that stuff right that's what we think right but uh, but how many things have we put in place of God and some of those things are not inherently bad they're not inherently evil but, but we've put them ahead of our relationship with God and so they have become idols you need a list okay how about money we're going to talk about it for, for four weeks coming up. How about money? How, how long will we do whatever it takes to get ahead financially or kill ourselves working? How many, who knows how many hours so that we can buy the latest and greatest of whatever? We put money. money's is, money is real easy, a real easy eye to force to have. We say, okay, well, my, my struggle is not with money. All right, well, let's just, how about power? You know, it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States or the president of the PTA. There is something that is seductive about power. And if we're real honest about it, there's there's something inside of each of us that wants a little bit of power. And when we get a little bit of taste, if we don't know how to check that, then it's easy for us to worship the power that we have. Those might be obvious, but what about things like our kids? We don't worship our kids, do we? Nah, surely not. But their calendar sure does seem to dictate every waking hour. We've got extracurricular activities for for school that, and we we want them to do those things because because it looks good on scholarship resumes. and And they've got uh, social activities, and we want them to do those things because we want our kids to be well rounded kids, right? We want them to be be liked by by most everybody, and we want them to have influence with with other kids and. And then we've got, you know, we've got travel sports, and because you know, my kid's gonna be the next Derek Jeter or the next Michael Jordan, and and all of those things, none of them are inherently bad or evil. I'm just telling they're not. But when they when they take the place of God, they become idols, what good is it for what good is it for them to have a great education, to get into a great college and have a great education, and get a great job? What good is it for them to have lots of friends and have lots of, of social connections? What good is it for them to become the next star, star athlete that our world and our culture reveres if they don't have a relationship with Jesus? What good is it? What was it Jesus said? It, it's, um, what good is it for man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? I'm just telling you, in our world today, it seems like we do a lot of things for our kids that set them up for what we would consider worldly success. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that you do things for your kids. Not at all. I do it too. I'm just telling you that if we put that ahead of their relationship with God, if that becomes a bigger priority than than their relationship with Jesus, then there's going to come a day when we're going to wish we had done things differently. Again, I think the parallels between, the, between America and the church now are strong to the nation of Israel during a time when God was pronouncing judgment on them. I right, understand this. The, these verses that we just read, it was a time where God was pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel, and when we look around and we, we read that and we look around it, we say, "Oh well, that, it looks awful a lot like our church our world today." And so we would be wise to learn from the mistakes of God to, to learn from the mistakes of god 's people. Who who came before, so that we don't repeat them, but also so that the gospel would not be hindered or slowed down by by our mistakes. You realize how quickly the nation of Israel could have gotten into the promised land. Um, when you look at a map, it was about a twelve day walk, about a twelve day walk to get into the promised land from where they were at, and they wandered around in the desert for forty years. Now, I know men don't like to stop and ask for directions. But for 40 years, they wandered around in the desert when they needed to walk 12 days. They did it because they continued to be unfaithful to God. And so, their pursuit was hindered. God's God's blessings were slowed down. And I'm just telling you that, that when we do these kind of things, it hinders the gospel. And so we've already established that the world hates Christians and the world hates the church today. And while I've suggested a couple of reasons, let me offer one final reason. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that the world would hate you, that the world would hate you. But but here's the thing. People don't hate Christians today for following Jesus too much, but because we follow Jesus too little. Jesus said the world will hate you because you're my followers, but the world doesn't look at us and say, oh, you're too much like Jesus. No, the world looks at us and says, you don't look anything like Jesus. And I don't want anything to, be, and I don't want anything to do with that. And so it shows through in a couple of different areas of our lives. And, and the church as a result has been stereotyped by these things, but often correctly stereotyped. The world looks at us and says, we're too political. I mean, it's America. It's easy to wed our political platform with our, with our Christianity. It's easy to do. And, and we've actually we've, we've seen it this week. Um, I'm sure if, you, if you've not been under a rock somewhere, I'm sure that you have seen all the Nike uh, controversy. And that has quickly become a political thing. And I'm just going to tell you, I really don't care if you buy Nike or if you don't buy Nike. I don't. I, I really don't. It makes zero difference to me. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I really don't care. Guess what? There's going to be both in heaven. I've heard I've heard some people say there'll be no Democrats in heaven, but but I, I'm telling you, and sometimes I'm inclined to believe that, but I'm telling you, I really don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. There's going to be both. We're, we're all going to be there. But the, but the church, Christ, Christians, have, have politicized this, and I'm going to tell you, the vitriol and the hatred that has has come pouring out of the mouths and the fingers when they're typing on social media, the hatred that has come out of some of the mouths of Christians We look at that and we go no wonder people don't want to be a part of the church emma green who writes for the atlantic recently wrote blinded by political tribalism and hatred for their political opponents these leaders can't see how they are undermining the causes to which they once dedicated their lives she says little remains of a distinctly christian public witness she's not wrong so the world thinks we're too political. The world thinks we just want their money. And I know we're going to talk about it in a few weeks, but but you've got prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen and, and even to the Pope in Rome, Christians, we are known today for being after the money of other people. Right or wrong, that's what that's what you, what we're known for. You ask somebody why they don't go to church, they, say, oh, they just want your money. And yet their, their, their excuse for that is because when they turn on the TV and they see all these big... Big-time TV preachers who fill stadiums, and, and then they, what do they do at the end of it? They said, hey, now, now call this number, and you can donate so much money, and there's not going to be anything in it for you, but you can donate this money. One TV preacher just in the last couple of months went on his, his TV show and asked people to call and donate to his ministry so that he could buy a new jet. You didn't misunderstand what I said there. He said, I need a new jet. And his rationale for that was if Jesus was alive today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be riding in a jet. And I said, I don't know about that. But, but he says, I've got I've to have a jet. And, and he needs a new jet to replace the old jet that replaced the one before that. People, people see that. And... They say they say that can't be that can 't be right that that can 't be good, and outsiders to the face sit and, and they can 't stand it we 're known for being too judgmental. Are we known for being quick to judge but slow to listen I think that's I think that 's what we 're known for being being quick to judge and slow to listen and and again, I see a lot of it on Facebook on social media. I see Christians just act like jerks um especially on social media, when, when people are on social media, it's like the gloves come off and they don't even realize that they're talking to real people. But understand this, when you post something on Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram or whatever social media you use, when you reply to somebody on social media, you are talking to a real person. And what you type with your fingers is the same as if you said it with your mouth. And so if you wouldn't say it to their face, don't write it on their Facebook wall. And so we're known for being judgmental. And standing up for truth is one thing. If you want to stand up for truth, that's one thing. But oftentimes, we're just disrespectful. We don't treat humans worthy of dignity and respect. Too oftentimes, Christians are characterized as having bad or no character. You know, humility should mark every Christian, but American Christians have have a lot of pride. And American Christians seem to have no desire to dialogue with others like they are normal people. You know, one of the things that bothers me about Mormon missionaries is that when, when they come to your front door and they knock on the door and they want, they want to solicit you, is that uh, they're not really interested in building a relationship with you. They want to tell you what, what they've got to say, and then, if, then they're going to move on. They don't have any interest in listening to you. And oftentimes, I think that could be said about the, church to, about, about the Christian church when we try to evangelize people, oftentimes we have really no interest in knowing their stories or building a relationship with them. We're just about adding a number to our, to our church. We're about, we're about adding a tither to the church. Because, you know, we, we, you know I, I've heard churches say, uh, don't go talk to people in that neighborhood. They won't tithe. I've heard, peop- I've heard church leaders say that. Man, yeah, we have bad or no character. We're immoral. There are so many high-profile sex scandals associated with Christians and the church now that it's just its too many to, can't, uh, to count. And it's sickening. Corruption and conspiracy and victimization that are rampant in the church, from Ted Haggard to, to Billy Graham's grandson to the, uh, the guy on the 19 and counting or whatever who, whose affairs got leaked because somebody hacked an affair website. We really don't have to go very deep into this because there are so many examples that that are out there. We've got Corinth written all over the church. And so we're immoral, and along with that, we defend injustice. You may have seen the hashtag Me Too. That's been a popular hashtag going around lately. Um, And and maybe you you also saw this one that came out with it. It was hashtag Church Too. And that's referring to the scandal of sexual abuse in the church today. And people are coming forward to, to tell of, the, of, the, of how they were abused by church leaders. And sadly, evangelical churches have defended predators rather than supporting victims. And one of the first cases that, that was made known, the, the pastor actually got up on stage on a Sunday morning and he confessed uh, his, his sexual abuse on people. And, and he confessed that to the church, which maybe a step in the right direction, but you know what the church did? They applauded him. They applauded this man's confession of a crime. They did not bring him to repentance. They did not seek to restore him and, and, or any of that thing. They applauded his victimization of a young person It seems like American churches would rather cover up sin instead of, instead of dealing with sin. And when the world sees that, again they say it doesn't look any different than the rest of the world. We don't stand up for justice. We're, this is when we're quiet and we're silent in the face of evil. When crimes are committed and we just keep our mouths shut. We just, we just keep things the status quo we don't de- when we don't defend the rights of minorities or when, when we should or when we don't care to listen to those who are hurting when we should. All of these things that I've just listed, they're all good reasons for people to hate us. And honestly, I think we should hate us too for those things. These are some legitimate reasons why people hate the church. And Jesus said, the world will hate you. So what was Jesus talking about when He said the world will hate you because it didn't have anything to do with any of these? According to Jesus, even if we're not too political or judgmental or we are consistent and faithful and and we follow Christ, the world will still hate us anyway. And so if if you ever became a Christian because you want to make everybody happy, I'm just telling you, you made the wrong decision there because you'll never make everybody happy. Jesus says in John 15, He gives us four reasons why the world will hate us. And the first one is this. He says, we'll be hated because the world hated Him. We will be hated because we are followers of him and the world hated him. Secondly, in verse 19, he says, we'll be hated because we do not belong to the world anymore. We should look different than the rest of the world. We don't belong to the world. We belong to Jesus and Jesus was nothing like the world. And we're to be his followers. And so we should, we should strive to be like him, not like the rest of the world. We talk about being countercultural, and, and honestly, we've talked a lot about how, why culture hates the church this morning. And if we want to influence the culture, that means we've got to be different than the culture. And that's not a new idea because guess what? The first century church, they were counterculture. The church has always been countercultural. And so we've got to step up and be that same way, and we're going to be hated for it. Third, Jesus says, we'll be hated because we are followers of the one. Who was first hated and persecuted? This is kind of the same as the first reason. All the more reason to believe it. And then here's the fourth reason, where Jesus is quoting a psalm. He says, "They hated me without cause. They just hated me without cause." Basically, you're going to be hated by somebody sometimes just because, no reason, just I, I, I hate you. And you ever meet someone who just hates your hates your stinking guts and you can't figure out why? Well, guess what? It happened to the prophets. It happened to Jesus, and at some point it's probably going to happen to you too. And so if the world's going to hate you, make sure that it's for the right reasons. Make sure it's because we are following the way of Jesus, because that's worth being hated for, because it's not a theology of power, it's the theology of the cross, and that, my friends, is a theology worth dying for. So it seems to me, as a a local body of believers, we have two choices. We can ignore what the prophets have said about the Old Testament, uh, about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We can ignore what the culture says around, uh, around us says about the church. We can ignore all of those things, and we can, we can leave things as the status quo, and we can, we can deal with the consequences and the fallout later. Or we can repent as a local church for when we have failed as a body of believers, and we can begin to pray for the church universally. And begin to, and to begin to seek restoration. Not so that the world will look at us and say, say, hey, they're good people. But so that the world will look at us and say, there's something different about them. What is it that's different about them? And then that would lead them into a relationship with Jesus where, because we've explained to them the hope that we have. I've been asked a couple times from different people about what kind of church I want us to be and what kind of church... I want us to, to be going forward and, and what kind of church this is. and I don't know that I've ever articulated that to, the whole, to, a, to a, a large group of people, generally just in, in conversation. But so here, here's, a, here's a brief snippet of kind of what I want the church to be. I want us to be a church that's never satisfied with the status quo. You look around at empty seats this morning. There's empty seats. In second service, guess what? There will be empty seats. And, and we can be satisfied with just the people that are here. And we can look around, and I just want to you know what each empty seat represents? Each empty seat represents somebody who's not here. And we can be satisfied with this. But I'm not. I'm not satisfied with that. And honestly, I don't think you should be either. I want us to be a church that's, that's not satisfied with the status quo. I want us to, to be a church that would do anything short of sin to win people to Jesus. We've seen how much the lengths that God would go to to bring his people to repentance, to, to win the hearts of his people. And honestly, we should be a church that does that too. It doesn't matter what it takes. We should be a church that will do whatever it takes to see somebody come to know Jesus. I want us to be a church that provides a place for people to heal because there's a lot of hurting people out there. I want us to be a a place for people to to have doubts. It's okay to have doubts. You understand that it's okay that we don't have everything figured out? It's okay to have doubts. I want us to be a place where people can come and they can express their doubts. I want us to be a place where it's okay to not be okay because let's all be honest, none of us are really all that okay. So why why would we shut out other people who are not okay? I want us to be a place where young people get real answers to their real questions. We tell them all the time, you, you, you got to know this so that you can be ready for the real world, as if the world that they're living in is not real now. Why would we not want to, in, to, to raise up a, a generation who has a biblical foundation, a solid understanding of, of the gospel, so that when they go out away, not into the real world, but away from us, they be able to stand on their own I want our church to be a church that dreams big, that thinks nothing is impossible. That we would have such audacious goals, big goals, that we would have such audacious goals that when when those things happen, we would only be able to point to it and say that God did it because it's bigger than me, it's bigger than us. I want us to be that kind of church that dreams big, but yet is faithful in the small things. That's what I want for our church. A little over a year ago, we came here. Actually, October 1 will be the one-year anniversary of our arrival to Glendale. But a little over a year ago, we came here for the first time and and I preached a sermon about running to the roar. And in that sermon, I said that we were not coming to do ministry for you. We were coming to do ministry with you. And that's still true today. I have been here almost a year, and I, have, I still have no intentions of doing ministry for you, but every goal to do ministry with you. And I think that this is something that we can, we can achieve. I think our church can be something more than it is right now. Our church is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not down in our church. I love our church. But we can be better. We can do more. We can, it, can, it can be more than it is right now. And so the question is, do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a part of that? And so here's what I want to ask you. I know every Sunday we have an invitation time, and, and I stand down front, and I'm going to stand down front this morning too, but I, I'm going to, it's going to be a little different than what we normally do. And I know we're, we're past time, and if you're late to Sunday school, I'll apologize to your Sunday school teachers for it. But here's, here's what I want us to do. I want to ask you to consider joining or rejoining the church that you would that you would commit to being all in and here's what here's what i mean by this that you you have if you've been here for a while and you've never placed your membership with us i, w- I want to ask you to do that this morning And here's why because here's what church membership gets you I, let me first tell you what it doesn't get you it doesn't get you into heaven okay being a member of glendale christian church is not a, a automatic ticket into heaven okay but here's what it does get you it gets you a family it gets you a family of people who will support you, who will love you, who will back you up, who will, who will have your back in any and all situations. It gets you people that will, when you're, when you're in the middle of something that you're not supposed to be in, that will call you out on it and say, hey, you need to, you need to get this right. And not only, hey, do you need to get this right, but hey, I'm going to help you get this right. I'm going to walk through this with you. That's what being a member of a church gets you. And so if you've not ever become a member of this church, I want to ask you to consider doing that because, honestly, we want, we want to be a family for you. We want to be a family with you. But I said rejoin as well. And here's what I mean by that. You've been a, a member of this church. You, you've been here since you were a little kid. You were here before Mike Bell got here. You've, you've been here for who knows how long. Or maybe you've been here just a few years. I want you to consider this morning stepping out and making a public commitment to being active in the life of this church, to being fully involved in the ministries of this church. Not just not just our our check mark Christianity, where we come to church on Sunday and we get our check mark and then we go home and it doesn't make a difference Monday through Saturday. I'm not talking about that because if that's what you want, then then okay. But but I'm just telling you that's not that's not this. I'm, I'm asking if you would consider stepping out and saying, I'm all in. Because there are people that I work with, there are people that I go to to school with, there are people that live next door to me that need to know about the gospel. And so I'm making a commitment that I am all in for the ministries of Jesus. And I'm going to do my part. I'm going to carry my weight. I'm going to carry my load. Did you know that in most typical churches that 20% of the people do 80% of the work? It's the 80-20 principle is what we call it. That 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And, and most churches, they're fairly successful even in that model. You know, their, their outreach is good, their evangelism is good, their discipleship and all those things are good. But what would happen if 80% of the people were involved in the work? How much better could we be? How much more could we accomplish? And so that's what I'm asking this morning that you would step out and say, I'm in. Whatever it takes, I'm in. Last thing, maybe you've never accepted Christ. None of this makes sense to you anyway because you, you you've never accepted Christ. You've never been immersed into His death, burial, and resurrection. Would you consider doing that today? And I get that maybe you didn't come prepared to do that. You we didn't talk about this beforehand. We didn't dis, you, we didn't discuss it. But let's not over, overthink things, okay? I think that's what happens. We overthink things. Let's let's. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If that answers yes, then do you do you desire to follow Him and His Word? If that answers yes, then it leads to one more question. Have you been obedient to Jesus in His baptism and His in identifying with His death, burial, and resurrection? And, and here's why we make immersion a big deal. Because Acts 238 says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's when, when the forgiveness of your sins, the blood of Jesus is applied to your life, is at baptism. And then Peter said, and then you will receive, at your baptism, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the, is the identifying marker of all Christians. And you don't get that until you have been baptized. Until you have identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. When somebody gets baptized, they go down, they're dead. They, they, they stay there for a few sec for, for a moment. That's a burial. And then they come back up, and that's resurrection. Not the same old person that they were, not the same old sinful life, but a new person completely forgiven with a new name. So this morning, if you haven't done that, would you be willing to do that? If today your answer to any of those questions is no, then I want you to know that there isn't any judgment from me, and there isn't any judgment from the people around you, or at least there shouldn't be. But if your answer is no, I just want you to know that don't give up. Because I'm not going to give up. This church is not going to give up. And more importantly, Jesus is not giving up. And our prayer is that someday your answer will be yes.